Jane. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to the elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tungata Whenua of Tafanganuyatara, where I'm recording today. Welcome to week four of this lovely season. It is a nice season. It's kind of a nice change. We've just published the last episode of Carry On, and I was reflecting how excited we were because we were ready to read something that didn't take as much energy. And I was like, you know what? That's right. This book has been just like, it's really nice to have something to dive into that doesn't require as much emotionally. I am looking forward to not crying my way through the last episode of this season. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, which would be like a change, right? Because we've read some pretty heavy books and with some pretty heavy themes, like both The Raven Boys, Carry On, The Scorpio Races. Oh my gosh, yeah. Strange the Dreamer, of course. Neverwhere was so hard for us. It was like really intense. I didn't expect it to be that hard, but it was. Yeah. Yeah. So Fangirl was like probably the one that was the most chill. And I guess this is a nice equivalent. It's nice for us to do that because it keeps us fresh as well. So we're not getting trauma exhausted. (laughs) Yeah. Weighed down. Yeah. This is our like these these seasons, the lighter ones, they're kind of our sabbatical, right? Like where we're still doing the work, but we're doing a little bit nicer work. Just recharging, refilling the cup so that we can go dark and deep on the things that need it. Right. Oh, Yeah. yeah. And I think next up is Dream Thieves. So we're going to need all of our wits about us then. (laughs) It's going to be a tough one. Speaking of things that spark joy, what sparked joy for you this week, Jen? Well, I had a lovely evening on Wednesday. I went to a new restaurant called Kisa, which is a Turkish, well, Middle Eastern restaurant. It used to be a pop-up in Wellington, and now it's got a permanent place. And it makes me so happy because it's like in this part of Cuba Street that has traditionally just not been a good, like no one has used the space well. It's been a Mm. bunch of really terrible pubs and it's just never really appealed. And now finally a really cool restaurant has taken over the space and made it a really funky, fun, vibrant place to be. And I had suggested it for my Harry Potter and the Sacred Text group as our new venue because we try to change venues every now and then just to get a breadth of experience but of course vegetarians and vegans so you know you have to make sure that the menu has got lots of options which Kisa does and it was just lovely and the staff was so nice because I rocked up there they only take 50% bookings and so I didn't get a booking and I rocked up there early and I'm like please may I have a table and they were like (laughs) oh I don't know we're kind of full and then people left just as I got there so she's like oh I'll just clear that for you I thought they were going to be here for ages so she gave me the table and yeah It was really nice and it was a really nice session. We haven't had one in over a month because we're all very busy and there was sickness and stuff. So we've been apart for a while and it was just nice to get back together and we're reading Prisoner of Azkaban last few chapters. Yeah, it was (gasps) lovely. Spark joy. I'm on Azkaban as well with chaplaincy class, which is called Azkaban Summer because it's summer for everyone else in the class. It makes me (laughs) laugh because like it's not a summer destination. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) This is not the light and joyful sounding thing it is. absolutely not yeah well what sparked joy for you this week uh it's been kind of a crazy week my husband is still away I don't want to whinge but like he is my (laughs) best friend and I really like having him around so I'm just moping around like Eeyore so I did have a couple great moments though yesterday my niece and my brother-in-law came over and then my friend Joe and her two little girls came over and her youngest daughter is the same age as my niece and they're both going to be in the same school next year and it's a really big school so it was kind of like hey meet this potential new best friend and because they're four it's like of course they'll be best friends because they like all the same things and they're two little girls in the same room like this is just how it works from like 99% of kids yeah it was so cute so I had all the kids in my house I had five children and three adults and it was just a really nice very noisy but very fun day the kids all took care of themselves and each other and the adults got to stand around and drink coffee or tea and chat Mm. for like two hours without very many interruptions so it was really nice really enjoyed it amazing yeah it was nice to like just have people around that weren't my two children who I love but Mm -hmm. I have seen a lot of this week so yeah and arguably this the last two years (laughs) it's nice to have people over again Um, And especially my brother-in-law, who is like a hype man, and then Joe, who is also like a hype man. So they were both hyping me up about being good at running. And I was like, guys, I haven't gone all week. You can't say I'm good at this. But I was just like, thank you for the compliments. I'm trying to accept them. But like, 
stop, stop. Oh, cute. Yeah, they were both adorable. Well, you are adorable, so you deserve adorable friends and family. That's just <laughs> how that works. I mean, I agree, but my friends and family are far more adorable and deserving. Well, this week we're reading chapters 15 through 19 through the theme of acceptance. Jen, do you have a story about acceptance? This was hard for me, I have to admit. Like, I spent a lot of time this week thinking, oh gosh, I need to tell a story about acceptance. What am I going to say? I don't know what to say. I don't have a story. Mm. And this morning I went for a walk with my friend Meredith, who is lovely and accepts me for the little weirdo that I am, which, you know, is lovely. We love but anyway, Meredith. We do love Meredith. Official Big fan. friend of the pod. Official favourite person. She's amazing. But yeah, so we were just walking and chatting and we talk about a lot of things. We just talk for hours and hours. Like, I literally spent five hours there today just hanging out, talking about everything. But as we went on this walk, we were talking about travel and now that travel is a thing again Mm. and seeing more people on our social media going traveling and, you know, the question is coming up now, oh, have you got any holidays planned, right? And I made the comment that one of the things that I actually really liked about COVID was the fact that people weren't traveling and so no one asked you this question. Yeah. Which got me thinking about COVID and how it sort of forced us all to stop like this pandemic, especially in New Zealand and Australia where we were locked into our countries and you couldn't actually leave yeah hard borders yeah we we had to stop and really evaluate the parts of our lives and go actually all these things that I thought I had to do because there's a societal pressure about travel about Mm. work about how you perform about where you should be at this age of your life all these things we kind of did on autopilot because it was a societal expectation COVID said hey you can't do that now so we had to stop and look at our lives and go actually is this serving me yeah And so I went on this big mental journey because travel has been a big part of my life. I've been very fortunate. My dad worked in aviation, so I've been traveling my whole life, like since I was very little. I've been to loads of countries and I always feel this pressure to travel. My friends are always traveling. People are always traveling. It's really hard when you live in New Zealand to travel because everything is so far away. Yeah. And because I have friends and family in various countries, when I do travel, I feel like I have to travel to see them. Yeah. So I always felt this pressure about like, oh gosh, I need to be doing the grand adventure. I need to be going to, I don't know, Turkey and Greece and Japan and Canada and like the States because I haven't been there and Mexico and South America and always in my head I'm like oh you need to do all these things and then Mm. COVID said no no one's doing any of that and I had a moment where I just went if this is my life if I can never travel again if this is the end of the airline industry because there was lots of sob stories about that being the case at the time how will that make me feel will I be happy with my life so far and I got to the conclusion that if I never traveled again I was fine with that. And it was just this moment of going, I actually accept where I am right now. I accept the life that I have. I don't need to chase this dream, this promise, this thing. And so now people ask me, you know, do you have plans to travel? And I do, like I'm going to Melbourne for Christmas and I do still want to go to Japan. And I, I thought I would do that when I go to visit my friends in London. I would go to Japan on the way and then go to South Africa to see my grandmother. But I don't feel that compulsion, that kind of FOMO that comes with travel anymore. And yeah. when people are like, oh, have you got any trips planned? I just say, no, actually, I, I refuse to buy into this FOMO culture around travel. It's I feel people travel because they want to get it on the Instagram. And I want to travel because it serves me, because it serves a purpose. I don't just yeah. want to travel for the sake of it. So no. I don't have any trips planned and that is chill because I accept my life for where I am at right now. And it's just interesting that I was talking to Meredith about work as well and she was talking about her career options. She's got a really high pay, like high level job right now. And she's like, I don't know if I actually want to keep working at this level. Maybe I want to take a step back and go do consulting or contracting. Maybe I don't want to lead a team of 25, 30 people, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's a lot of pressure, which she's fully capable of doing and she enjoys doing, but is that long-term what she wants to do? And society tells you that once you've gotten to that level, you stay at that level. You keep pushing, you keep going. Next step is CEO. Yeah, exactly. Chief marketing officer, chief executive officer, you keep going. But we can actually just stop and go, no, I accept myself where I am right now. So yeah, I just thought that was an interesting way to look at acceptance, where it's like, look at self-acceptance as well to go, am I being pushed into something because it's an external moding factor or is it something that's coming from within me? So yeah, that's my little story, tangential story about acceptance. Thank you for sharing. I think it's really important to be happy where you are. And I will say as somebody who's got family on the other side of the ocean, it is really hard when you want to travel and you are aware of the fact that you should go see them. Like that always feels like an obligation. And I don't know if I've been able to ever shake the guilt of not seeing my family when I go to the US but most of the time the friends I'm going to see or where I'm going to 
go is like a straight one-to-one -one connection or maybe two flights to see my family it's like four planes in 24 hours and sometimes I'm just like I can't do this <laughs> like, I cannot yeah. do this and it's hard it's really hard to make that call I haven't seen my best friend Sarah since my daughter was six months old and she's never met my son I haven't met two of her kids and we keep wanting to travel but it, mm. it's just hard and that's weird because I feel like when you have family overseas, often when they see you traveling other places, why aren't you coming to see me? Right? Like, it's so easy. It's it's never that easy. I mean, I always budget down to the penny and use as many points as possible and fly the airlines that, you know, my husband's work flies with so that we can get the points to use them for the tickets. Because otherwise we just can't, like, we just can't afford it. And we just live so far away. Like, I feel like people mm -hmm. don't understand you don't understand when you live in Australia, New Zealand, the rest of the world is so far away. Yeah. Like if you live in Europe, you don't understand what we go through. When I have to go visit my parents who live in Perth, that is two flights for me, eight hours of flying, two time zones. And that's mm. the closest neighboring country. Mm. So mm -hmm. last week, my husband was in Israel and he was like, oh, yeah, it's like an hour and a half wide by bus because mm. he was staying mm. in Tel Aviv and they did a bus tour in Jerusalem. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And he's like, maybe it's like an hour and a bit. It's like smaller than Canberra. <laughs> yeah. And he said it's three and a half hours driving top to bottom. And I'm like, so it's as long as Oregon is tall and it's less than the distance from where I grew up to the coast. Like that's how, like Israel is so small. It's like smaller than Western Oregon. <laughs> just mm. blew my mind at how small it was. It's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, Australia does completely skew your perspective of size because oh, yeah. like we wanted to go see a film and my friend was like, oh, it's not showing anywhere in Wellington. We'll have to go to Paraparumu, you know, up the Kapiti coast. I'm like, okay, well, that's a 45 minute drive. Like, yeah, sure. That's and she's like, oh, we can't do that. We can't go to the cinema 45 minutes away. <laughs> I've driven to Palm Beach from Sydney for like the day. That's like a four hour drive and back. I've driven to Canberra yeah. for the day. Like, yeah. Come on, people. I've done Canberra and back in a day. That's not that bad. It's like, what, three and a half hours? You've got good roads, good traffic. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, look, I drive 45 minutes to go to the slightly better Ikea. So I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> it's not that far. So funny, hey? Yeah, I was um I was enjoying looking at all of the places to do big walks in New Zealand because apparently there are little wilderness huts everywhere. So you can actually mm -hmm. like stop and crash all over and I was Overnight. like maybe yep. I should just take Simon walking in New Zealand. Maybe we should just find someone to leave our children with and go do that for a week. Yeah, I, yeah, you do the dock huts and the great walks. Some they're, they're amazing and mm. people do them all the time. I mean, I have no interest in staying in a hut in the wilderness, but people do it all the time and it looks great. I don't want to stay in a tent in the wilderness, but if there's like a shelter with a bed, even if the bed is just a wooden plank off the floor, I'm down. Like, that's fine. Some of them are really amazing, like quite nice, nice huts. Yeah, and probably half mm. of them were used in Hunt for the Wilder People, so. Yeah, definitely. Correct. <laughs> there was a tiger spotting this morning. We suspect we, well, not me personally, but someone suspected they have sighted oh, tiger in there. the wild. <laughs> the wilds of New Zealand. Oh, should I read our chapter summaries? Please. Okay. Sinclair gets messy drunk and tells Anna something important, but the next chance they have to talk, she pretends it didn't happen. Sinclair descends into a funk, leaving Meredith and Anna to do the heavy lifting of making sure he's not expelled or worse. His dad decides to teach him a lesson and refuses to let him fly home, so he and Anna are the only two left at soap over Thanksgiving, where Anna finally cracks it with Sinclair and tough loves him out of his funk, resulting in the first really good day he's had in ages. So on our theme of acceptance, I feel like Anna is so accepting of Sinclair's emotions and his journey and she's trying to meet him where he is and his grief, you know, and she's trying to support him in the way that he needs. Yeah. Like she's so considerate of where he's at, like more than anyone else, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. She's She really thinks about it. Sometimes I feel like it's a self-protective mechanism. Sometimes I feel like she's maybe enabling him a bit. I think they're all kind of enabling him by the end of it. After three weeks, you know, because Thanksgiving is four weeks. It's the fourth Thursday in November. So they've had a month of him just like mooching around and being sad. And I wrote that I felt like it was a really young feeling to have that you can just stop your life when you get terrible news and you can just descend into this despair because it doesn't feel like depression. It just feels like he's really feeling sorry for himself and letting himself kind of dwell in that. I did think it read like depression because if we think of the grief cycle, right? Yeah. Depression is part of that. So he could just have fallen into this really horrible, dark place just because mm. he's not he's not looking after himself. He's not eating, really. He's not showering. He's not cleaning up his space. Like, that is quite depression-y behavior. Yeah. And also, can we just say that his dad is absolutely in the bad dad club? Oh, 100%. He's right up there with all the other racist party dads. I wanted to ask you this question. Hmm. 
just while we talk about Anna and Sinclair, like, is it acceptance that she has decided that she can't pursue this thing with Sinclair because it wouldn't be fair considering his situation? Because I feel like she's made that decision for him. And that is kind of unfair as well, because while I I think honesty is the best policy a lot of the time, and it's kind of cowardly to pretend that this confession didn't happen, Mm -hmm. but also very much a sign of youth, right? Being like, oh, this is too much. We can't deal with this. But I do feel like she's made that decision for him. She's like, he can't handle this right now, so I won't talk about it. Like, she's not, yeah. Yeah, she's got a lot of, like, reasons for it. You know, she says, like, friends don't let other friends make drunken declarations and expect them to act on it the next day. And Mm. then she's kind of rationalized it away by saying, you know, he just needs friendship right now. And then, you know, on page 151, I won't add to his misery no matter how badly I want to know the truth. So she thinks he's been honest with her, but she's also, like, a little bit unsure and she really doesn't want to, like, complicate anything. I can't really tell if it's coming from a place of empathy or from her just being like, no, I don't want to be the person who breaks them up. I don't want to be yeah. the other woman. Like, she's framing it like she accepts this as her job to be his, I don't know, moral compass or something. Yeah, on page 158, she says, I'm too worried about Sinclair to think about him in that other way. He needs familiar right now, and Ellie is familiar. Which, to me, is just... That's like <sighs> staying together for the kids. Yeah, but she's also just, like, she's made that decision for him. She's decided what he needs, but it's also kind of absolving herself of any responsibility, being like, I don't want a bar of this, so I'm just not gonna get involved. But you're already involved, so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he can't unsay it. I mean, I have the same question. I I don't know if these reasons are valid or if she's just avoiding accepting his feelings. And I think what comes out of that as well is another thing that I noted is like, there's all these jealous girls in this chapter, which I think is an annoying AF effect of youth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you've got Meredith being hurt because Sinclair's slapping her hand away and the cinema guy is asking if he's Anna's boyfriend and she's like all grumpy about it. But you then also have Ellie acting really hostile towards Anna when she comes to collect a drunk Sinclair. But is Anna a reliable narrator on this topic? Because I think she's projecting all that stuff with Ellie. Like she's projecting that Ellie is like glaring at her and shooting her hateful looks because she feels guilty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that Ellie is not as hostile and unaccepting of Anna as Anna thinks. I definitely agree. I think that Ellie is just really frustrated that she spent all this time getting ready for a party and didn't realize that her boyfriend was in the middle of an emotional upset and actually needed her to like show up and maybe mitigate some of the shenanigans. I don't know. It's not really anyone's job to prevent Sinclair from getting drunk, but it would have been nice if anyone but Josh had been in charge of that particular outcome. Yeah. And he might still have gotten, you know, completely blind drunk, even with Ellie there, but at least he would have had that emotional support that he gets from someone who's known him for years and is in a relationship with him. Whether or not that relationship is working or not is besides the point. Like, as his girlfriend, that is kind of the designated role that you are the emotional support person if you're in a relationship, right? Yep. So... And she's yeah. really not. This is the thing. Like, we see it later in the section where he says, oh, Ellie just doesn't have a clue. And I, I really hate mm. that it's in response to Anna asking sensitive and thoughtful questions like, how is treatment going? Is she, you know, undergoing this particular type of radiation? Has she got burns? Or is the lotion helping? And, you know, he's like, oh, Ellie has no idea. She doesn't understand any of it. And I'm like, well, whose fault is that really? Yeah, I feel, yeah, I, I agree with you because I think, as we've seen, he is reluctant to engage. He has to be dragged out of his room. He's not forthcoming with information. It's only because Anna kind of has this, like, she's obsessed with making him smile and getting a a reaction from him. Like, she's really hyper-focused on that and she's hyper-focused on not saying the wrong thing around him. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying Ellie is insensitive, but maybe she thinks, oh, he doesn't want to talk about it. It's more familiar in that way of like, oh, you're fine. You know, like when you're with someone for a long time and they stub their toe, you're not like, oh, how's your toe? You're like, I've seen you break your face open before. It's fine. You're fine. Like you you have a limited ability to like put up with their nonsense. When you're still in the throes of like a crush, you're more like, oh, this person, I really want to pay attention to them. So sometimes you pay more attention when they're whinging a bit more. I think that's how I feel about it anyway. Maybe yeah. it's just me. Maybe I'm just a jerk whose tolerance goes down the longer I know No, I, I think that happens all the time because you also get to know people. So it's like, mm. Mm-hmm. I also just think that he's not he's not communicating what he needs, right? So Ellie yeah. can go, oh, he just wants he wants something to distract him. He wants to not talk about it. I feel like everyone else is kind of treating him like that. Like Josh yeah. and Rashmi, everyone's like, we just won't broach this topic. Like no one talks about it. Even Anna, when she brings it up when they go to the Pantheon's like, oh no, I've said the horrible thing about the cemetery. I've brought up that memory. And what he actually needs, what we see at the end of that section, like that chapter is that he needs to talk about it. Like talking about it yeah. brings him out of his shell. But until that moment, maybe he didn't even know that you know yeah i agree with that that's part of Mm. why i think it's not like depression 
because when you're a teenager everything is just so much more everything is turned Mm -hmm. up to 11 so when you have an upset it's like way worse than if you're 30 and this happens like it's devastating but you're more likely to be able to look at it and say right this is what I am able to do this is what I can't do it's really frustrating I'm recognizing and naming it and you can accept your circumstances with a bit more maturity whereas I think he's just like I'm gonna melt down now and that's a perfectly valid response but for weeks on end and making your friends worry is kind of not cool yeah I did also note that it's again that kind of youth thing of being confronted with death and mortality for the first time like Anna says on page 139 people my age do not have parents who die yeah she really struggles to accept that someone's mom or dad could get sick which is wild to me because I definitely had peers when I was like in primary school and high school who had sick parents dying parents like it's not uncommon it's kind of just her naivete again right like she's quite sheltered in a lot of ways she really is but I did like that she got a perspective where she was like oh you know I shouldn't maybe be so down on my dad for sending me here because he would never keep me from my mom I mean boohoo I'm in Paris wah like she actually kind of says to herself like hang on I need to stop being resentful about this but then her dad also won't pay for her to go home for Thanksgiving which I thought was a dick move so the big family holiday it's the big one in the US I would say in my family Christmas meh whatever but Thanksgiving is the one that my mom is like super territorial about and I think like you know her dad can't afford it so him to go oh it's a waste of money why have you decided that if Anna's mom could afford it she would bring Anna home therefore you can afford it you should pay for like you were the one who sent her away so send her home 100% like I just think bad dad club as well Anna's dad James Ashley in the bin yeah there's something about this behavior from Sinclair as well like obviously it's horrible to get that news about your parent especially when you can't go home to see them like I can't imagine being in that situation but part of me also feels a bit like okay buddy but how are you gonna react when she actually dies like yeah maybe this isn't about you I feel like he's making it a little bit about him and it should be about his mom yeah definitely I had a similar not a parent but a grandparent a similar diagnosis when I was in my teen years and I can remember exactly what I was thinking when I heard and I was not like oh my 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 life is so terrible and it's all over and I'm gonna go to bed it was like okay so I pretty much need to cancel the rest of the summer and be a babysitter for my younger siblings like I was already thinking of all the stuff that I would need to do and like it wasn't resentment really it was just more like my anxiety took over and I was like what do I need to do what has to be done and I don't Mm. think that Sinclair has that level of I don't know self-awareness maturity maturity he's very worldly he knows a lot but he doesn't have a lot of practical experience and if we bring it back to acceptance like he's not accepting his circumstances he's still being very railing against the world yeah there's a lot of resentment against his dad and so he's doing what will make his dad more furious when he should really be at this point he needs to be playing the game and playing a long game because eventually he'll get out of that and he'll be able to do what he wants but he really needs to like work within that constraint Yeah, and I think Anna is right when she says to him, you know, this is not what your mum would want either. Like, Hmm. you should be making her life easier in this moment where she's going through this horrible thing. And that would involve not being a problem child, which is how you are behaving like a problem child. So Um, there's a great diagram somewhere on the Internet about the kvetching circle, which is like where you're allowed to kvetch and to whom. You know, it sort of like radiates out from the inner core of people to like the family members of the people. And you can always kvetch outward but you can't kvetch inward about the same thing mm. so you can't tell your mom that you're really bummed out that she has cancer like you can't like that's that's the wrong way to kvetch but you could kvetch to your friends about how bummed out that your mom has cancer that's sort of the I'll have to find a diagram so I think Sinclair hasn't really figured out the kvetching circle yet mm. it's just not kvetching to anyone it's a rough one it's a, it's a terrible thing like I'm not undercutting that but yeah he's not handling it particularly well I have a question for you. I want to know where you land mm. on this. Um, on page 155, Meredith and Anna are getting patisserie, which is, it sounds amazing. I want all of the gateau as well. She's sort of sounding Anna out about whether or not Josh's behavior is doing more harm than good. Mm. And like on the surface, it looks like he's very accepting of Sinclair's situation. But Meredith's point is that on 155 she says it just seems like Josh is telling him it's okay to stop caring I feel like I'm always the bad guy get up go to school do your homework and Josh is like screw it man just leave and Anna at this point she hedges Mm. so first of all I want to know if you agree because I kind of agree with Meredith that Josh is being not a great influence and two do you think that Anna is hedging because she wants to remain accepted in the group yeah she doesn't want to have an opinion because then she'd take a side right she doesn't want to take a side she doesn't feel like she's part of the group to that level 
you know when you're friends with people for a very long time you become a family unit and therefore you can have arguments and you'll be fine because you're like family now so you can fight with each other and that's fine and I feel like Anna feels like she's not quite at that level so she can't have a strong opinion because then she'll be ostracized right and she doesn't want to come out strongly against one person or another but I think it's interesting that you raise that because something I marked on my tangential marginalia was on page 163 when Sinclair says he's going out with Anna she's asking him if he has a hat and he says Mer is that you do I need my scarf will it be cold mummy I think it's so horrible to imply that Meredith is too fussy or like the mum like that's a big yikes for me so she's not wrong that she's being set up by this relationship like she cares about him she's the only one who's actually pushing him to get out of this funk and and as a result he's like "Mm, you're not my mum I don't like that yeah, I don't like it either. It's it's one of those things where you know that Sinclair is a well-drawn character because he's not perfect, but it makes me mad at him. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. He is like a real boy and I hate that because sometimes boys are jerks and he's just a jerk there, yeah. Mm. He does fall into the trap of kind of comparing the women around in his life. I do think he's not very kind to Meredith a lot of the time. Like, he must know that she's into yeah. him. He's doing the same thing Anna does, right? He hedges. He just doesn't make a declaration mm. one way or the other. They're both very indecisive people who are trying to, like, you know, they're very middle of the road the whole way. What's that saying? If you try to please both sides, you end up pleasing neither side? Yeah, you can't sit on the fence, right? Like, this Mm. is why you can't sit on the fence in politics or anything like that, because you have to make a decision. It's in Hamilton. If you stand for nothing, what do you fall for? I think about that all the time. Yeah. Being afraid to have an opinion is no way to live your life. I would rather have an opinion and I know that some people won't like me for it. That's fine. Then have no opinion and be liked by everyone. Like that kind of middling nonsense. Just what purpose does this serve? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of love that Anna's starting to accept Paris. Like you can see it through her talking about the the cuisine. There's so many lovely food descriptions in this section. The the Nutella and banana crepe and like Mm. the macaron. Like delicious. Love that. Give me some. I want some. I want to go to the city. I know. I was very Um, hungry reading this. Yeah, I love that she's like appreciating the food. And, you know, she talks about how everything used to be too sophisticated for her taste. But three months into it and she understands like and it feels like Paris is accepting her as well. You've got the cinema owner being like recognizing her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. lovely. It's really cute. I like I like also that she immediately leaps to the defense of the Pantheon where she, you know, he's like, "Eh, it's a bit second rate. And she's like, are you kidding? I love it. It's my favorite now. It's the best. Tell me who's buried here. I want to know. Like, she just immediately is like, no, we're not doing that. No negativity. It's not happening. It's really cute. It's a me thing. Like, this is my hill to die on. (laughs) It's the completely irrelevant hill. (laughs) He's like showing her the, you know, this is the tomb for this person, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I have no idea, but I'm too embarrassed to ask. That's such a youth thing, isn't it? Being like, oh, I don't know anything. I'm not going to say anything. Have I said it wrong? Who knows? Now I'm just like, I want the guidebook. I want the headphones. I want to walk at my own pace and read everything. I am old. I am in sneakers and I am having a great time. And I think you see that juxtaposed with Sinclair, right? Because he's not afraid to say, oh, actually, I don't know. And he goes to like, you know, they see Foucault's pendulum and he's like, I don't know what this is. He goes to read the plaque. Like he's not, he's open to that. He's not like, he's not hoarding his knowledge or being sanctimonious about his knowledge or what's the word I'm looking for? Pretentious about it. Like he's not holding it against you he's just genuinely excited by knowing and imparting mm. knowledge he loves to know things and learn things and teach other people things he's a Which curator lovely yeah it's it is sweet. really lovely i thought the whole drunken room visit mm. was a whole exercise in youth right yeah like this is anna having to deal with her first proper intoxicated friend and like hunt we have all been there it's a rite of passage like she's like i'm not equipped for this type of situation i should probably get him some water that's what you do with a drunk person right you give them water and it's so funny i don't think i've ever had to deal with this i don't think anyone i know has ever gotten this smashed around me would you like it because we can organize it for you (laughs) (laughs) well i'm always going to be the designated driver with any friend group because i'm a teetotaler so i'm like yeah sure i'll drive i love to drive and i don't mind i mean you're not missing much but i have had many many a drunk friend and i have been the drunk friend so you know i see you anna i'm the one who's like i've got all the buckets i have the spew bags I will bring aspirin. That's me. I'm I'm the mom friend. I think I wanted to talk a little bit about Rashmi because I think that she's not a very accepting person. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's acceptance as in like she just likes being in opposition to a lot of people or if she's very particular so she doesn't have like the willingness to tolerate difficult situations. Like she's not very patient. She's not very resilient. Or if she just doesn't care about being included so she doesn't need acceptance from like the wider group she's just like no i don't need that i'm just gonna do and say what i want so i was just kind of wondering where do you think she falls on that 
Yeah, she's interesting because she is quite abrasive, isn't she? Like, mm. I'm reluctant to use that word, especially to describe a female character. But she is quite, like, she doesn't she picks make fights. any effort. She doesn't make effort. She picks a fight with Josh, which I think is kind of uncalled for in this situation. Like, it doesn't really serve anything, you know, when he's drunk. Like, yeah, I get that, you know, he said he was going to be home hours ago and whatever. But you know he was out with Sinclair. You know they're going through this thing. Like, in that moment, being upset in that situation where you already have a... Sinclair basically passed out on the floor. That is not helpful. I yeah. mean, it's very useful, but that's, yeah. that is not the time and place, you know? And then she storms off and then Meredith storms off after her and it's like, okay, this has not helped anything. And you've caused the scene and now there are loads of people watching. So good good work. Um, and the only time she seems to like weigh in on anything is if she can be in opposition to something. So like mm-hmm. the only time she really comes out and says anything here is when, what's his name, Scott says something and she's like, rah, 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 it's none of your business or whatever she comes out saying. Yeah. To me, it feels like insecurity. It's like she... I don't know why it feels that way to me, but it's just like, it's a kind of combative kind of, I'm going to be grumpy and against everything because I don't actually know who I am yet, but I don't want to be what you think I am. So I'm just going to go real hard on that. But I don't know why I think that. I really like that reading. I wonder if the way that she deals with feeling uncertainty is to have a lot of control over her environment and that she really Mm. reacts negatively to that. I see it with like when my kids are really tired and things aren't going the way that they want them to. They sometimes become really fixed on an idea and like anything that's not the idea is just so unacceptable. You know, like last night it was bedtime and my son wanted to play Lego and he had a full on like 10 minute sobbing, screaming, tearing all the covers off the bed kind of thing. I was just like, I can't say yes because like you're just you don't have time you don't have time to play lego it is actually bedtime but you sort of like this is just so much unnecessary noise but i see that you need to do it and it's because he didn't have the control he wanted to have that control he wanted to do the thing and like being unable to but also being really stressed out and not being able to reason through it i just feel like rashmi's always very stressed out about stuff Mm. because she's not in control of whatever it is her her environment or her life maybe i don't know yeah maybe that's what it is yeah i can definitely see that or even her relationship right like she it's a weird relationship those two yeah it doesn't seem very weirdly yeah no and she's a very fussy and particular person and josh is very slacker coded (laughs) it's kind of like you see this in couples sometimes where you're like oh one person is way more invested than the other one and the other one's sort of just being dragged along this relationship could very easily just not be there and it wouldn't actually change anything in the relationship. Yeah. I think Josh is quite invested in Rashmi's realizing maybe that she's not, but wants to have a reason not to be, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, when you're like at that point with someone where you're like, it's time for us to stop dating. Time to examine all of your flaws and find one of them that will stick. Like you don't want to break up because you're just not feeling it. You need a reason. This is what that feels like to me. Josh is interesting as well. The fact that he's like, yeah, drop out to Sinclair. Like, this is your mate. Why are you encouraging him to drop out of school? Where's he going to go? What's he going to do? You know his home life is not great. I don't yeah. understand what you think is going to happen here. Like, And is that does that speak to him actually wanting to drop out? Does that speak to something more going on? I, I don't know. Well, I do. I have read the other two books in this series. So I do know that the last book is about Josh. And he does end up leaving, which is mm. kind of spoilery. Sorry. But yeah, like he's, he's just not... He's like Ronan... At don't Aglandby. you dare. But you know what I mean? He's like, he just <laughs> yeah, doesn't have yeah, a need yeah, yeah. to be there. And he's just like, I don't want to be here. Stop making me be here. Like, mm-hmm, he does not mm-hmm. want to be there. Even for the things that it will benefit him, he's just not interested. Yeah. So, I, like, I already kind of know that about Josh, that he's not going to stay. It's just not very fun, though. But that's interesting to know that because the advice he gives Sinclair then is projection, which I think a lot. Yeah. there's a lot of projection between these characters, which I suppose is a youth thing. Where they're like giving advice based on what they would want to do rather than what the person needs mm. or what the person would want to do. Which is something you learn with age to be like, this is not how I would do it, but this is not my decision, you know? I'm still learning that. I'm so It's so hard for me to... Like, I know in my brain that people are different to me, but I don't really know in my heart. <laughs> Sometimes I have to be like, no, but really they don't want the same things I want. Because that would be crazy because I don't want the things that they want. But I don't know why they don't want the same things that I want because the things I want are obviously the best things to want. (laughs) But I am aware of it so, you know, I can work on it. But yeah, it's a lifelong thing. I mean, I think we all fall into that trap, definitely. Like, we are inherently selfish people, right? Like, you view the world through your body, through your experience. Like, that is your view of the world. 
Anais Nin said, we see the world as we are. Yeah. And so yeah. like there's this trend on TikTok where young women are kind of like addressing their past self, accepting that they're going to be single forever, basically. And they're addressing their inner child, yeah. their six-year-old self being, I'm sorry that I can't give you the, the life you want. You know, I know you wanted to get married and have kids, but we're not going to have that. And I'm really sorry. And it's framed as this beautiful kind of like grieving process. And it's great to appreciate what you have. And part of me is like, this is so bizarre because six-year-old me would have been like, yeah, no, you're doing great. Good job. Like, but then I have to remind myself if you've never wanted those things like people yeah, yeah. who actually do want those things this is quite hard for them mm. and I always have to tell myself that because I'm like why would anyone want that I just assumed that if I didn't find someone I liked well enough to marry and who liked me that I would have dogs like I had the both plans I was okay <laughs> with both plan b yeah well they're like they weren't even it was like either this path or they were both equally weighted in fineness yeah, I just have to always remind myself, as you do, about, oh, this is not the life I would have wanted. And so I'm like, but why would anyone want this? I'm like, they're not yeah. you, Jen. They're not you. That's why they want it. This is like when anybody has a baby, you're like, why would you have a baby? Me, when people have a third baby, I'm like, a third one? Are you nuts? Yeah. It's, it's just different levels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that's the powers like you have to remember. And I feel like these characters are not quite there yet in their journey, in their growth. Definitely not. They're still very young. Uh, but I love how young they feel because they feel like they're genuinely teenagers. They feel like they're really figuring this out. This is like really the gift of Stephanie Perkins is that she's writing these characters and I can see their growth as they're learning and mm. growing and changing. But they still are so full of like actual genuine youthful flaws. So much running around. Like I do not remember running around this much <laughs> as a teen. Like I'm like, why are you running through the dorm? Why are you running to the Pantheon? What is going on? Well, and like there's uh, a whole scene where Anna like goes and spits off the roof trying to hit a sign and I'm like oh why would you do that and then I'm like oh wait I'm old I wouldn't do that so there's definitely like a lot of things where I'm like yep this is a childlike thing to do this is a teenager thing to do even though I'm a fuddy-duddy mm. it's kind of nice to see them having fun and who hasn't been like okay everybody's gone we're turning the music up really loud gonna yell in the stairwell hey of course yeah if that's the way they're letting their hair down I'm here for it hmm um, anything else? That's kind of all my points. Yeah, there was a couple of little tangents that I really liked. I have one extra tangent, and that's just the line on page 160 when she says, you can't switch nationalities as it suits your needs. As someone with multiple nationalities, can I just say, you absolutely can. That is one <laughs> of the joys of having multiple nationalities, is that you can choose whichever one suits the situation. This is true. I'm only one nationality, but I've been in Australia for a really long time, so I feel like I'm mostly like culturally Australian. But sometimes people say something, and I'm just like, you don't get it. You're not American. You don't know. I met someone recently who's his parents are Russian, so he grew up in Australia, but like he grew up with Russian parents and we had so many things in common because Russia is very similar to the US and that like the individual people are amazing but the country is everyone else is like ooh you're from where so it was just really mm. funny that a similar thing like oh yeah I, I do sometimes fall back on that but I think Anna was right to call him out on this because he always says he's American and now she's like it's yeah. an American holiday and he's like I'm not going anywhere and she's like yeah nonsense get up no I agree but I, I love wearing different nationalities <laughs> I think my favorite line was Girl Scouts didn't teach me what to do with emotionally unstable drunk boys and it made me laugh. Great line. Anna has lots of good jokes and I really enjoy her good jokes. Um, did you have an in-depth marginalia? I do. So it's quite a long random in-depth marginalia. So please bear with me. So mm. this is basically literally Anna's an English class. Sinclair is sitting next to her and she's just observing that he's actually not engaging or anything. And then in the background, you have the teacher talking, like yeah, talking yeah. about this novel. So that is actually my in-depth marginalia. So it's page 146. The teacher saying foreign novels are less action orientated. They have a different pace. They're more reflective. They challenge us to look for the story, find the story within the story. And then a, a little bit further on, she goes on to talk about how many steps away from us is that? Is the what? Is it the one, French to English? Or do we count the first translation, the one the author only made in his mind from Chinese to French? What do we lose each time a story is reinterpreted? So I think this relates to our theme of acceptance because it's about accepting things for where they are at. So meeting them where they are. Like you have to meet the story where it is and then look for whatever meaning it is, which yeah. is what we do with this podcast. Like we meet the story where it yeah. is and we look for meaning. Um, I think meaning making, especially with books and films, is also about feeling accepted by the work itself. Like, can you find value in the narrative and does the narrative find you willing? And for you to be willing, you need to be accepted. So 
I recently rewatched The Princess Bride and this reminded me of that. Like from the very start, Buttercup and Wesley are having different conversations and she has to learn to interpret his behavior for what it actually is. Like when he's saying, as you wish, what he's actually saying is, I love you. Mm. This is then extrapolated further as Buttercup interprets a situation where she believes Wesley is dead and she, you know, acts accordingly. And Wesley, as the Dread Pirate Roberts, has interpreted her situation and believes Buttercup to be uncaring and unfaithful. And so they have to see the story within the story to move forward together. And The Princess Bride is actually really great for this in general because the book is highly intertextual and framed as a translation of a folktale. Mm-hmm. So they get this vibe from it like, oh, you know, this might be right, but different versions of the story tell it differently. And like it has all these little footnotes and quotes that like remark on that. Very intertextual, really clever as a reflection of storytelling itself. Like it's doing a lot of work. It also made me think of memory, though. Like, memory is also translation. Every time you remember something, it's an interpretation and a translation of the events, often with new input and new context. If you're in a different place in your life, you're putting different meaning onto that memory. It's a fluid thing. And so what I was thinking of taking this forward, maybe the kind thing to do is to view our interactions with other people and to view our relationships as a type of translation as well, because it goes from their thoughts into words and actions. And then the interpretation I do from my own point of view and my own biases that I use to interpret that. So going forward, like I just want to remember that everyone is coming from their own place. And I want to think of all the nuance that I'm missing because maybe I don't speak their language and the translation isn't quite up to scratch. So just just to be a bit more aware of that. Okay, I love this because I picked the same. Wow. Yes, I picked the same in depth merge daily, but I picked the very last line of that and I just went mm. really hard on that. So I don't think it's going to overlap too much. So I might oh, as well but... go with it. Yeah, go for it. Um, So I chose the line, what do we lose each time the story is reinterpreted? Um, And you've already given the context, so I'll just go ahead and skip forward. Mm, mm. Um, So we've both taken the Steve Otter online seminar, and I don't want to say too much about the seminar itself, because like, if you are interested in writing or in her books, you really should just go get the seminar, because it's really good. Like The videos are good, and the text is really good. Um, But there's one thing that she says that I will share. Um, She says that writing isn't recording so much as it's like translating the idea from inside your head to outside of your head. It's an interpretation. Mm. So there's a similar idea there between that and what what Anna's teacher is saying here what do we lose in translation but I think that there's a flip side that's really unexamined which is what do we gain Mm. can understanding that there is loss with reinterpretation also lead to acceptance like maybe on a wider scale for example the way that I think of books in my head the way that I'm telling a story maybe it's perfect for me in its in its form in my head but once I write it down it might be more perfect for other people even though it's not as perfect for me because the translation is a little bit different so I do think that it connects to youth because it's a very youthful fallacy to pretend that your own internal narrative is removed mm. from bias and that's something that Anna is quite guilty of it makes me want to note all of the times that Anna is confronted with being her own bad interpreter and seeing if, if she is more able to accept things for having more nuance than she maybe initially thought they had so going forward, I guess I just want to flag that stories are important, even ones that are imperfect, which is all of them. Stories are mm. there to be read and argued with. Like we should be in conversation with them. Even stories we love have flaws and present with biases. We do ourselves a disservice by not recognizing that we come at stories from a perspective we can't see because we're inside of it. And we need to remember that we have to account for what's lost in reinterpretation. Not everyone mm. will get everything right all of the time, but someone could need the story we have to tell and it's worth it to accept that as imperfect as we are. I love that. Love that. I think that's something that we are at real risk of losing, I feel, especially yeah. with the way the discourse is going, especially critical discourse. Not so much in academia or like in reviewing or things like that, but public and the court of public opinion. Purity people culture. expect yeah people expect perfection from their text and that is not the point of a text the text is there to have an opinion to tell a story to present a specific point of view and you may not necessarily agree with that point of view but it still has value like you can still objectively look mm. at something that you don't like which is something i do all the time i read books all the time that i do not like but i can be like objectively this is actually doing something interesting and for a different reader yeah it would be amazing but that reader is not me yeah so we got to remember like this is a story for someone else not everything has to be for you yeah and the way to be a critic just for anybody who's writing one star reviews on goodreads does the story do what it's supposed to do and you can't really answer that question if you don't know what the story is meant to be doing that's why genre is important and that's why knowing your tropes is important and like tropes in and of themselves are neutral they are just a framework it's not negative if a story has a lot of tropes in it a trope is just a way mm. of saying this is a thing that happens in stories. It drives me nuts when people are like, this romance was too het. Well, you picked up a het romance, hun. Like, that. what did you expect to happen? Does, was he going to yeah. magically turn into a lesbian? Know what you're getting into. <laughs> 
that's so interesting for me because I will not give a book that I don't like a review. I just don't review them. If I don't yeah. like a book, I don't star them. Like if I like a book, it'll get a star rating. The lowest I would go is a two. Um, I would never give a one star review because I'm like, this book just isn't for me. Yeah. Uh, there's one exception to that. Just one exception where I gave the book one star because I thought it was technically, critically a failure on every level. And I'm like, I hate this book. This book doesn't work at all. Yeah. It doesn't work at what it's trying to do. It's not well executed. I'm just giving it one star because I was so aggro. But normally if a book is not for me, I'm just like, it's not for me. And I'm not into like, I'm not starring things on Goodreads to be an objective reviewer. But I think a lot of people forget that. Like people act like, oh, this book is terrible. I'm like, yeah, for you. That's yeah. just for you. Like, just be honest about that. <laughs> I feel like I'd be a lot more honest in my Goodread stars if I knew that the authors couldn't see what I was starring. Mm. Like, it makes me feel really bad if I don't like a book. And I kind of want to keep that record for myself. Like, actually, I felt like this was a two-star story for Jen. But, like, for other people, it might be a four- or five-star story. But because the author's going to see it and other people who might read it, who might love it, might see my bad rating, I'm like, I can't do that to them because this is just my opinion. Yeah, and that's the thing with one-star reviews as well. I'm like, well, what is the serving? Like, me giving a one-star review, I don't understand who that's for. Yeah. I don't know. Like... Not to bring it back to Steve Butter, but she says the three-star reviews are the worst ones. One-star, they're Aww. not going to like anything you do. Five star, they're going to love everything you do. Three star, those are the ones you have to really pay attention to. Not because you'll get anything from them, but because they're usually the funniest. I just never write any reviews, but I have started doing reviews on TikTok, which is quite funny to me. Oh, amazing. I did a whole year where I wrote a review about everything I read, and it was a really good writing practice because it made me think more critically. Well, this is the thing. I feel like if I'm going to do a review on Goodreads, I want to do it properly. So therefore, I want to look at the genre conventions. I want to look at the writing. I want to look at what the author is saying, all these things, and do a proper review. I don't want to do a subjective review. I don't want to be like, I liked it. I didn't like it. If I was going to write a review, it's going to have to be a proper review, and I don't have the energy for that. <laughs> so I just don't do <laughs> we do this instead we go deep on one book instead of reviewing hmm. all of the little ones but seriously ask our opinions about books we love to tell you we've got many many of them yes i like i tell everybody i have opinions about everything you don't have to agree <laughs> with me but i do have an opinion about it um well did you have a character you wanted to spotlight yeah um you actually brought this up earlier but i'm gonna go a little bit deeper on this uh i want to spotlight meredith she's mm. having to be the mom friend and she really wants to be the hot interesting friend that he's willing to get better for and she's stuck being the mom friend anna is the hot interesting friend he's willing to get better for which really sucks for meredith i just want to give her a hug and some hot chocolate yeah. and tell her that she's going to meet someone who's going to see her for both the amazing caretaker that she is but also as an amazingly complex and wonderful person in her own right it's really not cool of Sinclair to make fun of her. It made me feel a little bit less fond of him. And I feel like she's got her heart in the right place and she's really worried about her friends and she's always trying to make peace. And I just want her to be able to have something of her own. She deserves everything. She deserves the world. Yeah. She does so much work for that friend group and no one sees it and no one sees her and I really feel for her. Yeah, because she does the grunt work. So it's like they can be resentful about it rather than appreciating the care that it actually is. Her love language is, mm. you know, have you got your scarf and are you warm enough? Um, Who would you like to spotlight this week? So I was actually going to spotlight Sinclair just because he's in this horrible situation where he's had these horrible news and he can't go home. But it's also horrible that everyone is like walking on eggshells around him. Like that's mm. quite difficult to be around when it feels like other people are avoiding you or avoiding a hard conversation, doesn't want to broach the elephant of the room because they know you're going to get upset. When sometimes what you actually need is someone just to talk about it and someone just to raise yeah. it so that you can move move on so you can complete your trauma cycle if no one brings it up you're just in it the whole time right yeah um yeah i think that's hard and it's a hard thing to feel trapped when all you want to do is to see the person that you care about and love and you can't go and be there for them and be there for them in the way that you want to be so yeah i just thought i'd spotlight that because for all the people who are stuck in other countries from infirm or sick or elderly people that you care about it's hard work like i know it's terrible yeah. it's like an emotional toll so yeah i see ya it's been a long pandemic and we've all been stuck in other countries when people that we love are hurting or sick i mean there were people that live in sydney that i couldn't see for months and months mm. he really is in it and i think it's it's useful to point out that he does say i don't want to talk about it but we need to have more like we as a society need to have a way of saying I don't want to talk about it right now and then be able to say in a week or two when you're really feeling it like hey actually I do want to talk about it I need to talk about it like we need to be able to recognize that and say come back I need you 
more efficiently, better, more communication. Yeah. And often when people are going through grief or going through a hard time, people will only ask once. And it's almost a relief for the people asking to not be like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's like, oh, great. I don't have to. Like, I'm yeah. off the hook. Right? I've absented myself from a deeper obligation. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't ask again. Often people ask just once. Like, I have issues with things like, are you okay day? I'm like, ask your friends if they're okay. I'm like, one day a year is not good enough. You can't just be like, are you okay? And if your friend says no on that day, you're like, they're great. Like, no. It has to be deeper than that, you know? Yeah. I'm going to say, yeah, like every time someone asks me if I'm okay for like the first 30 times, because most of the time I am, but sometimes I'm not. And I just, it's automatic to say, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I talk myself into believing it. So mm. it's just wild to me. We we do need to get better at this as a as a culture. And I've, I think it was, it just reminded me of how in like different parts of the world, I'm thinking of the, the keening women of Ireland, you know, like how this was actually a practice that you would have someone come and wail over the death of someone. Like they would come and, and wail and cry the whole time. So you really had this whole conversation that was this wordless anguished grief it wasn't like talking but it was just this outward expression and as a society we don't do anything really like that here and yeah i think as a western society you know speaking of like english american you know mainstream yeah. western cultures stiff upper lip cultures yeah we, we we're not good with death we're not good with mm. the way we approach death we're not good with the way we process death like a lot of indigenous cultures have a, a history of you know you sit with the body of the person who has passed you do like a week-long vigil with the body you do all these things and then you come together as a family unit you process that grief together yeah. like it's a very much a coming together it's not a mourning so like you're mourning but it's also a celebration of life and celebration of yeah. the next thing so you get a real clean slate whereas in the west we kind of sort of go mm, you sort of don't talk about it and then it's like the funeral and then you're just supposed to go on with your life but people are just at various stages and no one's together and uh, it's just not a very good way to deal with death yeah. and death is something that we all have to face it's something we're all gonna have to go through yeah. it's bizarre that we act like it's this taboo thing yeah yeah and illness as well oh yeah one of the hardest things about having small children is that whenever I get friends who are sick and have immunity issues, I can't just go and like lavish them with love because I'm like, I'm covered in germs. I am a danger to you. So I'm always like, can I put cookies in your letterbox? You know, you just want to do something, but yeah. It just reminded me, I sent my friends who are parents this tweet that says, you know, daycare, here is all my money. And daycare is like, here is all the diseases. Yep. They have all the germs at school and they bring them all home for me. Yay. I'm doing my best to stay healthy so I can come visit you. Yay. All right. Well, next week we're going to be reading chapters 25 through 29 through the theme of self-awareness. Very exciting. Mm. Can't wait to crack on with that one. It'll be a good theme. Love a love bit of self-awareness. Same. I also love a bit of self-awareness. Thank you for potting with me, Jen. This has been a great day. Thank you so much. I um, always enjoy it. What a way to end my weekend. Yeah, it's such a great cap to a long weekend. Not a long weekend in the traditional four-day uh, event. The emotional it. sense. It's the, the long weekend and I, oh gosh, tomorrow's Monday and I'm actually happy about it. <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of weekend. Ooh, but anyway, yeah, it's been really good. Thanks for getting me out of my head a little bit. I really appreciate it. I love you. You're Always. Aw. All right, I will see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen B, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginalia Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com.